Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Laura Appleman, Van Winkle Melton Professor of Law at Willamette University College of Law. We will discuss her new article, Deviancy, Dependency, and Disability, The Forgotten History of Eugenics and Mass Incarceration, which will appear shortly in the Duke Law Journal. So welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's all, the pleasure is all mine. Um, and I must say, I found your paper um, incredibly powerful and in many ways quite disturbing as well. Uh, and I really appreciated the way you engaged with both history and policy in the interaction between the two in the paper. And Thank you. I, yeah, obviously, I want to spend a lot of time talking about both of those issues. <laughs> sure. Um but I think my, my my sense reading the paper was that there were some kind of core concepts that might be helpful for listeners to you, for you to talk about a little bit how you're using them in the context of your discussion so that it'll make more sense uh, as as we discuss this. So if, in particular, um, I felt like you used the word disability or disabled people in a way that was maybe more historically capacious than a lot of other people think of it. I was wondering if you, yes. if you could just sort of explain, you know, how you're using the term and why you're using it in that way. Sure. So one of the challenges of writing this paper uh, in, you know, a modern sense was, you know, um, talking about disability, but talking about it uh, in both the language and I guess the broader understanding of uh, people who are differently abled uh, in times past. Now, as you can imagine, some of that language was, uh, you know, what we quite honestly would now find very offensive. Um, but I think the other aspect was is that I think we tend to have these very sort of neat lines now. Uh, you know, we have uh, cognitive disability uh, and we have mental illness uh, and we have physical disability. And I think one of the things to remember about really, I would say, up until the 1970s or so or even later uh, is that, you know, our, our uh, ancestors did not have that uh, way of distinguishing, I think a lot of it because they just didn't understand. Um, and so, you know, uh, not only, you know, a lot of these sort of, uh, phrases that we'll be talking about, um, you know, uh, everyone was sort of lumped together. Uh, and there really was, I mean, I think it's been, especially when you talk about who ended up in asylums, um, in the, uh, sort of late 19th and earliest 20th century, uh, really was, a, a, a almost a grab bag of people and things where, you know, right, you know, now we have, you know, just treatments for, or, you know, the great glorious antibiotics. Uh, the, <laughs> um, and so, you know, and really going through the piece, I have to actually credit my, uh, you know, editors at the, uh, at Duke because they really, I think, pushed me to sort of clarify, uh, because, you know, I think it, there, there's so many, uh, you know, ways to refer to this and some of it is very sloppy. Um, and so, you know, I think tying this in with the disability rights, uh, thing was actually very challenging because it's, it's hard, it's hard to write respectfully about this when you actually use the terminology of the era. I was really impressed by how you were able to talk about all of those. Yeah. And I agree, you know, in many cases, very offensive ways of referring to people with different, uh, in different situations and, and to sort of make sense of them in a historical context. And, 
and analogize them to similar problems that we might still have today. Right. Well, I mean, what, one of the things that I think is important to, you know, and I think it's easy to end up when you're writing a piece of paper, like, oh my goodness, they were just so backwards, all of those people. And yet, if you look, and so the last part of my view, when you look at sort of how we treat people with disabilities today, it's not that different. We have better language, but mm -hmm. our actions are actually sort of worryingly the same. I mean, it was a fascinating piece to write. It was also a very depressing piece to write. You know, it's like, this is not necessarily what you want to find. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, anyone who sort of goes into this, uh, you know, I, I caution, I mean, it's to be like, well, obviously we know better, but uh, it's, oh, I wonder what, uh, you know, the future will stay about us. I guess that's my, my concern, my question. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point, especially as we get to sort of some of the problems with incarceration in how we think about it today yes. in relation to disabled people. But that was another term I was hoping that you could kind of give a little context to you because sure. you use it in a way that I think is very productive in a kind of historiographical sense, but that might not be intuitively familiar to people today. Right. Uh, so, you know, I guess, uh, you know, when we uh, talk about uh, disability uh, in the past, um, you know, really, I guess we, uh, we tended, you know, people tended to lump uh, cognitive disability and mental illness and some physical disability all into one stew. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, in our earlier days, I think we just had no way of differentiating it. But later on, right, which is, I think, sort of, for me anyway, where the most disturbing piece uh, of the article talks about, um, where, you know, for example, uh, seizure disorders, right, uh, or, or epilepsy. So, you know, um, Back in the very old days, uh, people were thought to be, you know, quite honestly, touched by God. Uh, but by the time we got to the late 19th century, with its great desire to sort of uh, sort and put people in various, uh, you know, uh, containers uh, or definitions, um, it had very much been turned into just another uh, cognitive disability, uh, even though, of course, it has nothing to do with cognitive disabilities, right? I mean, it is literally, uh, I mean, yes, it technically has something to do with the brain. Um, the other big example, of course, was syphilis. Uh, you know, always, we don't hear much about syphilis nowadays, which I guess is a good thing. Uh, but, you know, until uh, antibiotics were widely available, which really wasn't until the mid 50s, right? They, they had some some uh, early antibiotics uh, for for World War II, but they weren't available to the public. And so with syphilis, uh, you know, you would be infected and then with primary syphilis and then secondary syphilis, you showed, uh, I'll, I'll be polite here, you showed some sores, uh, but then it went away for a long time. And then, um, you know, <laughs> if you were unlucky, you'd get what's called tertiary syphilis or otherwise known as paresis, uh, in which you basically went insane, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and there are actually quite a few people who did this. And also it was um, contagious, uh, especially to um, 
childbearing mothers. So you had children who were born blind from syphilis and stuff. And yet that was also, I mean, it was, of course, at that point, a mental illness, but it was, of course, it, that was really just a, a physical, you know, uh, a bacteria. Uh, and more than that, um, this is where, you know, a lot of uh, class comes into us. And I think this is one of the things, um, you know, I, I sort of generally write uh, or have written over the years on um, criminal justice and mass incarceration. And I think that one of the things that really isn't discussed as much is class. I mean, obviously, race is the great third whale of criminal justice and mass incarceration, but class plays a large part too. And in this article, I really did see how class worked uh, and really, I think, helped support all these, uh, you know, all the locking up of various people with uh, so-called disabilities. Um, because let me tell you, if you were, uh, you know, a robber baron of the ni- late 19th century, you weren't going to one of these asylums, even if you did have tertiary syphilis. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that really struck me because Today, we think of incarceration as synonymous with kind of criminal imprisonment. Right. But you really, for me anyway, productively pointed out how a lot of people were historically incarcerated or effectively incarcerated in a great many other kinds of contexts. Right. I mean, I think, you know, until, right, like at the the peak of the asylums, I think the, uh, you know, incarceration rate... Uh, which I which I obviously use very broadly, uh, as in literally, you know, locked in 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 an institution, um, was like four times the corrections incarceration rate. And of course, this is before our great mass incarceration. I mean, of course, this whole this whole article started, you know, sort of thinking about well, why do we have mass incarceration? And you know, there's been a lot of books, I think, you know, and I'm pleased about this, saying, well, here's various reasons. And I was like, oh, well, you know, what about, you know, I think uh, Bernie Harcourt had uh, about 20 years ago written a very short piece saying, hey, what about mass institutionalization? I'm like, well, Bernie Harcourt thinks it's true. must be true. So I, I looked into it and uh, indeed, but it was far more than I think I had realized. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, uh, you know, aspect of we've always, you know, we haven't always locked up people, criminal offenders, but we have in this country always locked up, uh, you know, those that we, uh, you know, I think, are differently abled from us. Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of fear in that. And so that's something I just don't think a lot of people are aware of, at least sort of the general public. Right, right. So it, in in light of that, I was wondering if you could give, and, and there's just so much mm-hmm. to cover that we can only skim right. the surface, but if you could give kind of a potted history of the sort of conceptualization and sort of institutional treatment of or political legal treatment of disabled people in this broader context during the period of time that you look at in your in your article, sure. which is really quite broad. Yeah. But. yeah. Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll go very very like maybe a sentence or two over the colonial times. Really, sort of the nineteenth and early twentieth century. So, you know, colonial times with these teeny tiny little uh, you know communities, they pretty much kept people who were, you know, unable to contribute, right, which was the fulcrum of what you were in colonial society, pretty much at home, the attic, the basement, occasionally they'd, they'd, they'd build a little hut in the middle of the green. Um, and, uh, you know, and that sort of turned 
mid 18th century, roughly into almshouses, right? That was mainly for the poor. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that obviously uh, included people who were disabled because they, again, they weren't able to um, contribute to society. Um, mm-hmm. But really the beginning of the 19th century, uh, you know, or, uh, and late 18th century, we first saw the first asylum, um, you know, uh, and, and that was really uh, in large part uh, for the mentally ill uh, and the very poor. And I mean, I think that I want to stop and point out here that this whole, this very rigid idea of class really was part and parcel of, you know, the American experiment from the very beginning, and this is, I think, something I also had not realized until I'd done some research, uh, that, you know, first of all, that America was supposed to be, uh, you know, the dumping grounds for the refuse of the, uh, you know, I mean, we have this great idea, I mean, especially around Thanksgiving of the Puritans coming. I'm like, yeah, maybe maybe they came and escaped, um, but uh, everywhere else, uh, you know, so there's this tremendous fear of, like, sloth and laziness and, uh, you know, bad breeding, right? So sort of a proto-eugenics. Uh, mm. And so, um, you know, as people became more concerned with this and as, you know, sort of industrialization hit, um, you know, asylums began to be more popular. Um, and this, uh, you know, really uh, uh, took really took on steam after the 1920s because uh you know this great desire to regulate social behavior right um and so they built the this is, we foresee first penitentiaries for the criminal we see uh asylums mainly for mentally ill uh you know you see you start to see the first reformatory so all these institutions uh to deal with people who just didn't fit neatly into uh you know the social wheel i guess uh but then mid 19th century it all sort of fell apart because suddenly you have um you know all sorts of uh you know people who are now uh, seen as mentally ill and disabled. A lot of this is sort of post-Civil War. I mean, you can imagine sort of the post-traumatic stress disorders that are stalkering for that. Um, and so we have all we have these asylums and we have people flooding in uh, to uh, – you know, and you really start having, uh, unsurprisingly, a two-tier system. So you have something like in Boston, the McLean, uh, you know, asylum, now it's the institution, where it still takes very wealthy people to deal with their various uh, neurosthetic, as they used to call it, issues. And then there was everything else, uh, you know. Um, in fact, in, here here in Oregon, uh, we have uh, the uh, old uh, Salem House or the Oregon, you know, mental institution, which is where they f- uh, filmed one over, flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, uh-huh. And so, at this point, pretty <clears throat> much, um, you know, and uh, pretty much everyone was thrown in. So not just people who had cognitive disabilities. Uh, but also people who had drinking problems, uh, people who were old, people who were homeless, uh, pretty much everyone, um, you know, sort of, uh, because then they, you know, they, they were neatly contained. Uh, and so that sort of, uh, gets us, uh, you know, to the sort of late 19th century, uh, early 20th century. And that's when the progressives come in. And so, 
again, um, you know, I knew a little bit about sort of the progressive era. The progressives were great at many things, um, but they also really like institutions and they like the prison, the reformatory and the asylum. And the numbers for the asylum really skyrocketed in part because a lot of the a lot of states closed the almshouse, uh, you know, almshouse where they they dealt with the poor. Um, also, I think this idea of madness as a social construct, right? You know, it wasn't just you know people who couldn't contribute anymore. It was well, people who just don't really fit in. Um, and you know, the the progressives did many great things. Um, what they did with asylums, I would say, is sort of a black mark on their record, um, mm. you know. And so, in other words, they just wanted to quarantine uh, people who just really were irredeemable members of the polity. So mentally ill, cognitively disabled, physically disabled, outside social norms, right? And so now we have, you know, these places where – you know, we don't have to see them. And, you know, it's very easy to send someone away. So no one had any rights. I mean, not just women, anyone, anyone could really be sent away. Uh, and so, you know, we end up in the late 19th, early 20th century with these, you know, asylums really bursting at the seams uh, and, you know, really uh, sort of a captive audience to practice some uh, eugenic philosophy. Right. And what was it like in the asylums at that point? In time, because what you know, one thing that really struck me powerfully about the kind of historical part of your paper is you talked about the relative sort of social institutional significance as asylums as compared to penitentiaries. Right, right. So, um, I would say that uh, pretty bad, right? I <laughs> not you know, um, sort of uh, by the late nineteenth century, there were lots and lots of people in these asylums that really had only been built for a much smaller. I mean, the asylums had built in the eighteen twenties, right? So really, for a much smaller amount. And so we have scores of people jammed in, virtually no treatment. Uh, I mean, this is not sort of uh, I don't know, like today. This is not where the sort of promising young doctor wanted to come. Um, uh, you know, and lots of people sort of locked up together. Together, right? You know, people who are all different needs and 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 different issues, um, and you know, and so it was sort of like school. I mean, if you think about sort of what happened in California uh, with the Brown v. Plata litigation, where you know people were sort of jammed into uh, gyms and stuff with lots of disease. Sort of like that, but worse buildings, right? Um, you know, I mean, just. Uh, and you know, if you, you you can you know, if you want something, see very something very interesting, you can actually go. You can actually just Google this. You know, the you know, worst nineteenth century asylums. You know, people shackled to their beds. You know, sitting in filth. Uh, you know, really what we would call uh, you know inhumane and cruel and unusual punishment. Um, I mean, as bad as our prisons are, and they're not great. They weren't as bad as this because these are people who were thought of to have no rights whatsoever because they weren't. I don't think they were really seen as fully human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, I almost got the impression that people who were seen as redeemable went to prison, and yeah. people, yeah, no. <laughs> which, which is ironic. I mean, you know, well, of course, the the you know, it's it's bitterly ironic, but of course, prison was the place they were, they were literally reformatories, right? So you could actually be reformed as opposed to being sent to the asylum. 
you were in there for life and they could do what they wanted to you. Uh, you know, and so we have sort of these, these famous cases, Buck v. Bell and uh, Skinner versus Oklahoma, sort of, you know, mm. quasi protesting what's going on. And, and for the most part, uh, you know, I mean, you couldn't have a compulsory star- sterilization. I think the Supreme Court said fine, but, you know, Buck v. Bell's still good law. It's still cited. Um, you know, I mean, all, all sorts of fascinating, uh, you know, sort of horrible, uh, exemplars of this. Right. So this was like the story through the mid 20th century. Yeah. And then you really chart this like fascinating shift that changes everything while also in some ways is changing nothing. Right. Um, Well, I mean, look, it's much better, right? Uh, You know, so I mean, really, you have to, uh, it's an interesting shift, you know, why? I mean, sort of a a couple of reasons. First, um, medication, right? So I mean, you know, um, you know, I think medication for people who uh, are mentally ill, uh, kids still use some help. Uh, That said, the discovery of Thorazine, uh, right, Uh, which is a, a psychotropic or antipsychotic, uh, you know, really changed lives, like to the point where they could actually, uh, that and other antipsychotics, uh, along with some electroshock stuff, psychotherapy, a lot of them convinced a lot of doctors that, you know, even high need institutionalized patients could be released, right? And I think by the 50s anyway, right, there, there was some um, realization that maybe these asylums and institutions weren't the best place for people to live. Um, uh, you know, another big thing, uh, you know, is the, is the disability rights, uh, bar, uh, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, had a huge, you know, as they really saw themselves as part of civil rights, uh, you know, I mean, and, and that's not, I think not quite as, uh, well known. Um, and so in 1963, you know, Kennedy signed this community mental health act, uh, and that, basically says it meant to, you know, basically deinstitutionalize people and let them, you know, and bring them back to their communities and have sort of these local um, mental health centers. Unfortunately, uh, the second part never happened. So we deinstitutionalized, but we never built these um, mental health facilities. Now, it's interesting because there's, I think, you know, sort of the popular mind, there's, there's the, oh, well, it's Reagan who deinstitutionalized people and then let them starve. Not really, no. I mean, you know, we can blame a lot of people. And, you know, as a law professor, that's my job, right? As long as it's <laughs> not me. Um, yeah. But, you know, really, I mean, it was it was Congress back in, in the 60s. And, you know, who knows what would have happened if um, the other big mover is Medicaid, right? So mm-hmm. 965, we adopt Medicaid. And then, and Medicaid says, I'm not going to pay for you if you're in an institution. However, I will pay for you in a nursing home in a general hospital. Uh, similarly with Medicare, right? So suddenly, uh, for states, right? Like this is, this, I mean, it's all about money, you know, isn't it always all about money? Certainly with, uh, corrections as well. Uh, you know, it's just like, hey, the feds will pay for this. So let's, let's disassemble. I mean, uh, you know, not to say that there weren't, um, some serious lawsuits, but those weren't until the seventies, interestingly enough. I mean, so it's sort of a, you know, I mean, antibiotics so you don't have a you don't have a lot of people uh with uh you know paresis or tertiary syphilis and i think maybe just more understanding that epilepsy is you know a seizure disorder it's not some sort of horrific uh mental disease um so you know all of these things sort of led to 
uh, sort of the great deinstitutionalization. Um, but as I mentioned before, we just didn't, ha- we, we never put anything in place to replace it for those people who aren't able to live on their own and don't have a supportive family or family money, right? So it's those people who now fall into the cracks. And those, of course, are largely but not entirely swept up by the criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah. No, what really struck me about that story that you told of the 60s, 70s, and early 80s was this kind of horrific public choice incentives story about sort of deinstitutionalization without any practical institutional thought about what would happen to people after they left the institution. And as, as you say, we, we now know mm. what happened to a lot of those people. Right. I mean, to, to give President Carter his props, he did sign in 1980 the Mental Health System Act, which was going to supposed to improve all these things, uh, but uh, Congress blocked it. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of the last attempt. And I think, you know, now we, we see a lot of people, especially with mental illness. I mean, I would say that's primarily our big – the people with uh, cognitive disabilities, I think, have been better helped uh, by people, usually their families. But it's people with sort of more intractable mental illness who, you know, we find difficult to help in sort of an everyday life. Or, you know, leave, they leave their families, they, you know, et cetera. Uh, they tend to end up, uh, you know, in the, in the criminal justice system uh, where it's unclear they're doing much better than they were in the asylums to begin with. Right. So those, those were like the, the, the two category or there are like two categories of disabled persons. It struck me were most wildly deserved by the current circumstance that you described. And, the, and it seems like the big one is people suffering from various forms of mental illness yeah. who are ultimately reinstitutionalized in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in the, pe- through the penal system. Um, and I, you know, and I, it would be, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that problem. But in addition, you also talked about people who had other kinds of disabilities but didn't necessarily have private family member organizations that right. could care for them. Right. And they ended up in, you know, nursing homes and group homes in Unfortunately, not as dissimilar a kind of situation right. as we might like. And you it know to be. the 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 people that I sort of see. Uh, so, you know, I'm a parent with a child, and I see a lot of uh, people who are raising children uh, with autism, um, and really depending on the level uh, of uh, you know diagnosis. So, the big concern I know in some of the autistic communities is. If you have a child uh, who needs a lot of help, well, they age out of a lot of the state support at age 18. And then mm. what? Right. Um, you know, especially we have a sort of, you know, as, as parents age. So they're one people who are severely uh, physically disabled and, you know, again, don't have a lot of money end up in nursing homes that, you know, are covered by um, Medicaid, uh, but, you know, not really sort of the home-like, you know, circumstances that we we would, of course, want, Uh, you know. And so it's those two uh, sets. I mean, I think there is at least some 
uh, awareness of uh, the the fancy long word uh, is trans institutionalization, right? Where so for the mentally ill that they uh, you know went from asylums to now they're they're sort of in prisons. But I do think there's these two other uh, sets of people, um, either the sort of serious, very seriously physically disabled uh, or, um, you know, people who have, uh, you know, spectrum disorders uh, and, you know, and, and their, and their parents can't afford to do much for them after they turn 18. And I think we really, you know, haven't dealt with. Uh, and I think, again, it's, it's sort of the same. I mean, you know, um, I think part of the challenge in writing this paper was not to seem sort of too hysterical, like, oh, my goodness, eugenics is still here. But it's hard mm. not to see, you know, if you're sort of talking about what I think is often now called ableism, right? Uh, you know, that, you know, if, you know, that the, these people are, you know, so if if you are fully if all your physical abilities that means you are you know a a superior person or more willing to grant you rights uh, and i think mm. that's absolutely true when we see people you know how people uh treat adults with spectrum disorder and i think uh treat adults who are uh you know severely physically disabled um and you know to, to an extent uh mental illness as well because you know, most mental illness, uh, you know, goes in waves. So there's times where people are, you know, uh, really cognizant and times maybe they are less so. Um, but there's this remnant of eugenics. It makes me very, very uneasy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit of, as well, because I think this is really key to the way your paper intersects with the broader critique of mass incarceration. Um, how, how this problem manifests itself, uh, in the penal situation, um, and sort of how the history can and should inform how we think about the role of you know, sort of the criminal justice system in managing people and helping people who are disabled by mental illness. Great. So we have, we have a four hours right now. Uh, <laughs> I'll try to make it. So, um, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll just start with uh, mental illness because that is really, uh, you know, I would say, um, you know, maybe roughly 60% of people incarcerated suffer from mental health illnesses. Uh, but I think more important for these purposes, about 20% have a serious mental illness. Um, and I think, you know, you, you see this, uh, you know, this is, of course, how they get into the criminal justice system, um, because they don't, when they interact with police officers, they are not going to react rationally, right? Uh, you know, they're not going to stop. They may be shot. They may be tased. Uh, you know, they, they just, you know, if you are, um, you know, suffering from mental illness, occasionally, um, you know, you're, you're just not going to be able to, you know, do what, uh, you know, people want you to do. Um, and, you know, you're going to be much more likely to be homeless uh, and, just, you know, be in a situation where, uh, you know, given how we sort of police homelessness these days, a situation where you may be taken in into jail and then or prison. And then once you're there, uh, you know, or you may do things which are, you know, illegal. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're not uh, all, uh, you know, 
some of them are indeed criminal offenders. And then once you're there, the treatment is very, very minimal. Um, and you get some drugs. Uh, you know, you're obviously not going to get, you know, the full psychological workup. Uh, you would if you were, say, you know, an upper middle class person going to, you know, a hospital. Um, but uh, you're not well treated just because there's so many people. I, I mean, I, I'm not accusing the correctional system of saying, you know, you're purposely mistreating them. I just think there's not enough resources and there's so many, uh, you know, people in uh, jail or prison. And of course, a lot of mentally ill people are there for misdemeanors, right? Or, uh, you know, there's this public citizen in 1992 found that like for jails, which are for people who are incarcerated for less than a year, 30% of people there were just uh, mentally ill people who are just waiting for psychiatric evaluation. Um, and this, and this, is, they call it emergency detention, which still happens. Um, you know, because we have no beds, uh, we have no, we have very few psychiatric hospitals where these people can go. Uh, so sometimes they, we just, you know, that's they end up, uh, you know, in prison. Um, and of course, once they're in prison, they don't do well because prison, as you can imagine, is a very regulated place. So you have to follow the rules. Uh, and if you don't follow the rules exactly, you lose a lot of good time and credits and get a lot of infractions. Uh, and that's what happens to people who are uh, mentally ill. Um, and, uh, you know, they also tend to endure more abusive force uh, because, you know, they, they don't they don't listen uh, or they're not able to listen. Uh, and follow the, and so you know, and I think they're also seen sometimes as an easier target. Uh, so you know, that's what happens to mentally ill. The cognitively disabled prisoners is a little different. Uh, they still there's more. They do interact with the criminal justice system at a higher rate, um, in part because uh, sometimes they're manipulated into criminal behavior. They're certainly, uh, you know, when they're questioned by police, uh, you know, and of course, everyone should just be quiet. Let me just, my, my general hint to everyone, if you're, who, no matter who you are, if you're questioned by police, the only thing you want to say is, I want my lawyer, and then stop talking. Um, obviously, you know, uh, if you're cognitively disabled, you're not going to be able to make uh, that termination. Of course, if you've watched Making a Murderer and Brendan Dassey, that's a excellent thing, uh, exemplar of what happens when you, you know, when you just sort of confess. Um and, uh, you know, and so they also don't do, uh, so well, uh, in prison because again, they just, uh, they either can't comprehend or can't conform to jail and prison rules. Um, and so, you know, they too, and then, uh, you know, finally, if we very briefly, if we're talking about people with physical disabilities, uh, when they do end up, uh, in prison, and this is sort of a more tangential thing, but um, they also struggle because uh, you know you're not going to get your you're not going to get your ADA accommodations in a correctional facility. Uh, I mean, right. you're supposed to, but you don't. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's sort of what happens when they get in there. But you actually had a second part of the question, right? Which is, what should we do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well. <laughs> That's part four of the paper. Uh, very short. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, again, a lot of this is money. Now, interestingly, in the past couple of years, there's been some calls from psychiatrists, et cetera, to 
bring back the institution. Um, I think this is a profoundly bad idea. Um, you know, I mean, yes, we probably could use more psychiatric beds for very, very seriously ill patients. Uh, but, you know, I mean, what we need basically is to fulfill the second half of the community health bill that was never enacted after Kennedy, which is to, you know, I mean, most of these individuals, uh, whether they're suffering from mental illness, cognitive disability, et cetera, could thrive uh, in, you know, group homes. And you see this with uh, the private group homes uh, that, you know, people pay for that are not covered by insurance. Um, and, you know, people can have a really sort of uh, meaningful uh, life and, uh, you know, uh, you know, have a lot of joy, uh, but we would have to invest. Now, of course, would this cost less than imprisoning them? Yes. Um, but, but that's a, that's a, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to say, well, let's just cut the prison budget so we can, you know, make these, uh, community health things. And given how Medicare, uh, and Medicaid work, uh, you know, it's, it's I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a scholar in those two areas. Uh, my sense is you would have to, we'd have to change, uh, that a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, so, but just to give some brief, uh, Numbers so it costs about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to house and treat individuals in institutional care, whether that's prisons or asylums. Community care, which is at home or small group setting, costs about thirty thousand dollars a year. Um, right. But you know, to get you know, I mean, there's lots of things that uh, the political uh, will is focused on. I don't get the sense that uh, you know dealing with this this. Uh, problem is top on our list right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think in in conclusion, it seems like a lot of the observations that you're making suggest that there's like a sort of lot of intersectional connections between the issues in relation to disability and incarceration and a lot of the other factors often addressed in a mass incarceration context, like, you know, racism, the drug war, classism, and so on and, and so forth. And I don't know if you had any thoughts, sort of specific thoughts for the sort of broader community of people concerned with mass incarceration and, you know, something that they might keep in mind in relation to disability and that problem. Um, well, I, I really for especially for uh, disability uh, and incarceration, I think the the best idea would uh, create and a couple of places to do this: creating sort of local panels to screen people, uh, people who are arrested but not yet convicted uh, for either mental illness or cognitive disability. Um, and you know, creating a diversion program. I mean, I think you know some of the the best results uh that we've had in correction you know reform generally is uh you know some of these community courts like in red hook they've been doing it for the past 25 years um you know alternatives to just okay uh for whatever reason you've been arrested and now you're going to sort of be chewed up in the maw and unless you have money and power you, there's nothing you can do so and this would actually of course save us money uh and so i think that's something that we could you know being much more careful uh, in sort of who we actually send 
to prison or even jail, uh, and, you know, having lots of alternatives. Um, and that I'm a, you know, I mean, yes, in a, in a perfect world, we'd be like, it's always the Netherlands, right? For every subject, she's always the Netherlands who do like the perfect job. But we're not the Netherlands, right? Uh, and we do have this this giant uh, prison industrial complex, which I say only quasi jokingly. Um, and so, you know, to have sort of before they get into that thing, to have sort of the you know special treatment. Okay, so you have you suffer from mental illness, you have cognitive disability. You're, you're going to go into a special program, which can you know if we talk, you know, rehabilitation is a something we don't really talk about in. Uh, corrections anymore, but it should be, and not just for people with disabilities, but really for everyone. So if I had a magic wand, that's what I would do. 